0: archaeology is what we're going to talk about here next. And and you're going to see that archaeology is very important to help us understand the scriptures. Now, by no means am I saying we need archaeology to understand the Bible. The Bible interprets the Bible. But archaeology is important because it does help expedite scientific study of scripture. And it can help us illustrate different things. For example, in Acts 18, it says Galileo was governor uh, of Acacia. But no evidence has ever been found of that and yet Seneca and others had footnotes of him. So we know that history tells us it must be true. At Delphi there was an inscription found of Galileo. So even though the critics were saying there was no time for him to be governor, we found in archaeology that our critics were wrong and the Bible was actually right. And that was found that he was governor in A.D. 51. It does therefore help authenticate the Bible. We have other examples. In the 1800's it was said that Ezra never existed and the Bible must be wrong. He could not have been exiled to Babylon. Well in 1939 they found some pottery jars with King Jehoiakim's name found actually even in Babylon. It used to be said that it was impossible for the Jews to be exiled. Uh, one man even said, can you imagine a gardener being taken and being exiled? Nobody would exile a gardener. Dr. weidner from Germany, he excavated Babylon, and they found an inscription there that refers back to 592 B.C. It mentions Jehoiakim as being king of Judah, and that he was taken back to Babylon, and it even mentions the rations that were given to him on a daily basis for food, and names a gardener. A Jewish gardener that was taken back and exiled as well. So again, these people who keep mocking the scripture, archaeology is just confirming the scriptures even more. Another guy named C.C. C. Torrey said that Ezra was not reliable because the language came from the 3rd century and it would not have been known until at least 300 B.C. And that's, you know, long after Ezra in 1911. The elephantine papyrus was found near Aswan in Egypt and they showed words that were in Ezra that weren't supposed to be known at that time, revealing that those words indeed at the time of Ezra could be used. So again, it really helps answer our critics in a lot of way. The Carchemish tablets, they show the Hittite existed when the Bible said they were to exist. The critics were saying the Hittites in the time frame that they were to be alive didn't match up with the Bible. But... That has all been proven to be incorrect now as well. We had critics of Genesis chapter 14. They said that there were the list of kings that are given there that, that were conquered by Abraham. And they said that those kings never existed. That the these kings would have had no relationship uh, with Canaan in those days to Abraham. So... Uh, you know, your Bible must be wrong again. Well, 1918, a guy named William F. Albright from John Hopkins University, he was one of the top dogs at this time, said that these kings did not exist. In 1933, they found the Mari tablets, and they showed names of two of these kings. Even a contract that was found showing a wagon that was rented and gave the distance of where this wagon went, showing that they traveled great distances when the critics were saying they couldn't travel that far, you know, Canaan and Abraham. So Albright, after all these things came about, admitted he was wrong. So these things even make our critics, in some cases, recant. They said Solomon's wealth would be exaggerated because there's no way they could have that many horses. Well, when Megiddo was excavated, they found out that it was big enough that it had 3,000 stalls for horses, just as the Bible would describe. In 1945, the Nuzi tablets in ancient Iraq were found showing Esau's birthright was accurate. And identical birthright rituals are recorded where one man even sold his birthright of a grove of trees. These blessings were shown to be legally binding, as the Bible also indicates. Rachel took the household gods of her father Laban. Archaeology has shown that those household gods were were very important, not just for worship, but they were actually like a deed to your property. So all of these things are being supported by archaeology. But, here's the question. Many of the things we find in archaeology are dated, and they're given dates that don't agree with a young Earth of about 6,000 years old. Now, why are these things being said to be 9 and 10 and 15 and 25,000 years old when carbon dating isn't being used, radioisotope dating isn't used? Now, we address carbon dating and radioisotope dating in other presentations, but it's not just those issues we also have to deal with archaeology. And we're going to explain why that is. Now, according to scholars of today, the Exodus takes place in about 1445 B.C. You will not find a scholar in the world, really, that's going to disagree with that much. It is widely accepted that if the Bible is true, if the Exodus really did happen, it took place about 1445 B.C. Now, according to traditional secular chronology, that's in the 18th Dynasty of Egypt. Now, the problem with that is this there is no evidence in the 18th dynasty at all that the Israelites were there, that Moses was there, or any of these plagues taking place. So our critics are saying archaeology is proving the Bible to be wrong. Jericho is supposed to fall 40 years after that. They've spent 40 years in the desert. So 1405 B.C., that is the late bronze period according to secular chronology. And the problem is Jericho does not fall in the late bronze period. David is to be king in 1010 B.C. That's the beginning of the Iron Age II period. However, this is a period of poverty. The Bible says David was rich. Jerusalem was in great shape. So somebody's wrong. Either the secular dating or the Bible has to be wrong. Which is it? Well, I know it's not the Bible. In order to understand this, we need to understand how they get these dates. And we're going to fix this chronology. Let me tell you what we're going to do before I explain why we're going to do it. I am not going to change the fact that the Exodus takes place in 1445 B.C. History pretty much will confirm that but I don't believe it was the 18th dynasty. I believe it's the 12th dynasty. And I don't believe Jericho fell in the late bronze period, but I believe it fell in the middle bronze one period. And I don't believe David was ruling in the Iron Age period, but the middle bronze two period instead. Now, I know these are going to be a lot of things. that go middle bronze, late bronze. Just I want you to really remember MB1. If you can remember MB1, That's going to help you remember everything else. But, you know, you can't just come in and just change things wherever you want. How do we justify changing 18th to the 12th dynasty and the late bronze to the middle bronze periods? Well, very easily. You see, as I said, the 18th dynasty is when the exodus is supposed to take place, which is 1445 B.C. You can see here by the blue arrow that that is when 1445 B.C. is. Now, we get all of these dynasties of Egypt. There are 31 of them. We know that they end in 332 B.C. when Alexander the Great came and conquered Egypt. History doesn't deny that. The real question is, when did they begin? And they typically say around 3100 B.C. is when the Egyptian dynasties began. 3100 B.C. Now, the question we have to ask is, how do they know this? How do they know how many dynasties there were, all of that? Well, by one man, a man named Manetho. Manetho was an Egyptian priest. When Alexander the Great came and conquered Egypt, and so he conscripted this guy, Manetho, to give him a list of all the pharaohs that reigned in Egypt and for how long they reigned. Well, you don't tell your conquering king, no. And you don't tell him you don't know. And so, as a result, he gives a list of kings. And he says, this pharaoh ruled for so many years, this pharaoh ruled for so many years, and so on. But there's a number of problems. First of all, not only do they ignore the fact that many of these kings were said to be reigning contemporary, but also we don't have any of Manetho's writings. As a matter of fact, not a single piece of it exists today. We only have people who quote what Manetho said. So how reliable are they? especially when many of these copyists contradict one another. So if these sources are unreliable, some of them, we can't listen to them. Yet the reliable ones are agreeing that these dynasties ruled contemporary, many of them. And yet the secular world has ignored this and said, all right, this one ruled, then this one, then this one, and they just put one right after the other, and they just back up to the time of around 3100 B.C. But if some of them ruled contemporary, that would take 3100 B.C. and move it up so that the Egyptian dynasty wasn't as long as predicted. Now, it would make sense that kings would rule contemporary because Egypt is about 12 kilometers Wide along the Nile River and a thousand kilometers long, which is about 620 miles. It's very unrealistic to think that one pharaoh could rule a thousand know, kilometers, 620 miles, with a chariot. That would be very difficult. So it just makes common sense that, as Manetho seems to have been quoted as saying by more reliable sources, that these kings ruled contemporary, many of them. So you could easily remove a lot, maybe 750, 800 years of history by that alone. Not only that, but there's something called the TIP. It stands for the Third Intermediate Period. Even secular Egyptologists like Peter James and David Roll here say that the TIP never existed. The TIP were dynasties 21 through 25. There is not one piece of evidence anywhere in the world suggesting that these dynasties were there, outside of some of these more unreliable sources, quoting Menetho. So these guys are now saying they never existed. There's 250 years of history that you can remove. This book, A Test of Time, will talk about some of these type of things, as well as other books. You could easily, therefore, by saying kings ruled contemporary and the TIP didn't exist, remove a thousand years of history. And when you do that, that means, yes, we know that the the dynasties ended in 332 when Alexander the Great came, but they began around 2100 B.C., which means 1445 B.C., the time of the Exodus, is not in the 18th dynasty anymore, but it's the end of the 12th dynasty, Is there any evidence then that at the end of the 12th dynasty that the exodus took place? Absolutely. My DVD on Pharaohs of the Bible will go into more detail on that, but the bottom line is this. Once we correct this timeline, not only do we find evidence of the exodus, and I'll give you little bits of it, but then everything else is corrected as well. Now, I'm going to give you some history. We're just going to walk through the Bible here a little bit. We know that right after Noah's flood, they went and they settled in the Tower of Babel at Babel, Babylon. Babel and Babylon are the same word in Hebrew. It says in Genesis 11, verse 2, "...as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there." Interestingly, archaeologically, we find in the plains of Shinar today, where Babylon was, a tower that is today, many believe, they think is the Tower of Babel. It's called the Beers Nimrud, here you can see. I don't believe the Tower of Babel, even though many think it's possible that it could be. The reason I don't think it is, is Professor Coldway excavated Babylon in the early 1900s, and he found a foundation of a ziggurat that was even much larger than the Beers Nimrud's here. And what happened is he dismantled it brick by brick, hoping to find some treasure in there. They didn't find any treasure, but he never put it back together either. So it's not there, but the foundation is suggesting that that bigger one could have been maybe the Tower of Babel, rather than this Beers Nimruds, if either one of them. But nonetheless, we see archaeology telling us that these civilizations and ziggurats were indeed there. Well, after this Tower of Babel happens, God confuses their languages and people spread out throughout the world. Well, God takes note of one of these people, and his name was Abraham. And he was in the the Chaldean city of Ur. We read here in Genesis 11, verse 31, that Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So we see where Abram comes from biblically. We also have excavated Ur. You can see here this is Ur of the Chaldeans. It was the capital of Samaria. And it is believed that these people invented cuneiform writing, as well as the development of math and geometry, things like that. It was in 1854, the British Museum began to search treasure in a ziggurat called the Mound of Pitch here. They took this thing apart, brick by brick, hoping to find treasure, but they didn't. Instead, they only found four small clay barrels that were covered in this cuneiform writing. They didn't realize at the time the importance of these things, but later on when they were translated, it referred to a king who built this ziggurat. And it turned out to be the king that was reigning during the time of Abraham. So this cylinder here describes the repairs of the temple to the moon god, Sin, and his wife, Nanner, who were worshipped at Ur by King Nabonidus, and it even includes a prayer for his son, Belshazzar. Well, in 1922, uh, an archaeologist, very famous one named Charles Leonard Woolley, excavated more of this, and he found that this city of Ur was extremely advanced. It wasn't very simple as many thought it was. They found two-story homes built around an inner court, a drainage system that's even better than what we have in Iraq today. It was a city of high scholarship. Abraham grew up with this. He grew up in a very educated society. Matter of fact, Woolley says this, quote, "...many school tablets survive and illustrate the course of study. Long lists of single signs with phonetic values. After grammar came math, and we find tables of multiplication and division." Tables for the extraction of squares and cube roots, exercises in applied geometry. Now, what's interesting about that is again, people always thought these weren't very advanced civilizations. But Woolley found that these guys were very advanced educationally. Josephus even says of Abraham, when Abraham was going into Egypt, Abraham communicated to them, the Egyptians, arithmetic and delivered to them the science of astronomy for before Abram came into Egypt they were unacquainted with those parts of learning for that science came from the Chaldeans into Egypt what is significant about that is we did not know that these people were uh, were were very advanced until 1922 yet Josephus is telling us that Abraham brought this applied math and science into Egypt, suggesting that Abraham, or I should say Josephus, knew what he was talking about. Now, before I get too much further, I want you to understand that I'm not making up these dates of the Exodus at 1445 and so on. The Bible gives us these dates. We know that Abraham left Haran at 1875 B.C. How do we know? Well, Solomon becomes king in 969 B.C., History pretty much will support all of this. The temple is built in the fourth year of his reign. That's what the Bible says. Right here, the first verse, it says in 1 Kings 6.1, In the 480th year after Israel had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. The Exodus is 1445 B.C., 480 years after that, Solomon builds a temple. When is that? 966 BC. The second verse says the time the people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on the exact same day, it says they left Egypt. So we know that they came into Egypt, but 430 years before that, what happens? It says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, the law which came 430 years afterwards. So the law, when they leave Egypt, was given 430 years after the covenant God gave to Abraham. So if they leave in 1445 B.C., 430 years before that is when the covenant is given, 1875 B.C. Third verse here says, Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So we know that God appeared to him then at Shechem, it says. Therefore, 75 years before God makes a covenant, puts Abraham at Haran, and born in Ur, around 1950 B.C. So the scriptures are giving us much of this information. I'm not making it up. But with that as a time frame, a biblical worldview time frame, you will see that everything is going to fit nicely together with what we see in archaeology. Well, when God does call Abraham, he is supposed to go into the promised land. But he goes into Egypt as well. Keep in mind, this is around 1850 B.C. The Bible says this in Genesis 12, verse 16, when he goes into Egypt. Pharaoh treated Abram well for her sake, his wife, and Abram. He acquired sheep and cattle, male, female, donkeys, men, servant, maidservants, and camels, and so on. What's interesting about that is we read in the Bible that Pharaoh blesses Abraham greatly. After he had lied to him, Abraham said, This is my sister. He gets caught, and Abram blesses him anyway, or Pharaoh blesses Abram anyway. Why? Well, there's two possible reasons. One, for sure, divine intervention. God was watching out for Abraham. But the second possibility could be this Josephus said that the Egyptians weren't aware of this kind of math until Abraham came. Abraham taught them some amazing things. They were impressed with Abraham, according to Josephus. And so they might have tolerated more from him than they normally would anybody else. But what's significant is we know that this is around 1850. Do you know that the Khufu pyramid, the one that is exactly square, is built in the fourth dynasty in the 1850 B.C. period? The same time Abraham is supposed to be coming is, by coincidence, the same time our pyramids get more exact and, uh, you know, pi, 2 pi r is being used. Perhaps that's why Abraham could have been lavished with gifts. Because God often used the natural to accomplish the spiritual. Again, we can't say for sure, but it's just a possibility that that's one reason why he was lavished with gifts. Now, we know that Abraham, then later he gets into the Promised Land. He's got his nephew Lot with him, but his herdsmen begin arguing with Lot's herdsmen. So they have to separate. And Lot selfishly chooses the beautiful area of Sodom and Gomorrah that looks like the Garden of God. Well, Abram goes off to Hebram. Well, Lot goes to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, archaeologically speaking, there's not been a lot of archaeological study done, but I do believe this here is Sodom and Gomorrah. As you go up, and this picture is showing you from the top of Masada, as you look down towards off to the left as you're facing the Dead Sea, you see these areas that are just completely different than anything else in the area. It's really white. The whole color is different. It even looks like there's something like a pyramid and maybe a, a sphinx type thing there. As you go down there and you walk among it, you can see clearly the colors are very different. As you walk around in that area, it is just like powder. You pick this stuff up and it will just crunch and crumble in your hand as if it was ash out of your wood stove. There are millions of sulfur balls in that area. And it looks like it just rained down. They're little round balls. In some cases, they're just out and about because they've fallen out of their encasement. In other cases here, you can see, they have been encased. I'm holding one there. It's kind of black where it has burned out. These sulfur bowls, it looks like they would rain down, being on fire. They would, as they would be on fire, would burn out because the outside would kind of form a case, leaving the, the yellow sulfur still on the inside unburned because oxygen couldn't get to it anymore. And there are millions of these things laying around out there in varying sizes, Analyses have been done of this, and it doesn't match up this sulfur to anywhere else in the world. They say, well, this is just a volcanic area, so sulfur would be there. But this isn't the kind of sulfur we see at volcanoes. This seems as if sulfur rained down in varying sizes all over the place, and it burned it up completely. And people say, well, how could it burn up rocks and stones like the pyramids? Well, if you recall Elijah, when Elijah went up on the mountain in Kings, and they were having their altar uh, to Baal, and then Elijah had his altar to God. Baal never answered, but God answered Elijah. And it says the fire came down and it even burned up the rocks, as well as the water and the sacrifice. And even down there, it looks like there are streets and things like that, even what look like maybe uh, you know, flying buttresses and, and the columns that have been just burned up, completely destroyed. And nothing grows there to this day after Sodom and Gomorrah. Before this, it was like the Garden of God. There are so many connections that are possible. It even says that there were five cities that were burned. Remember, Sodom and Gomorrah aren't one city. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. And there are five of these locations along that Dead Sea that are like this, completely different than all the rest. So again, I won't be dogmatic on it, but... In my opinion, I do believe that this is the Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, If you ever get a chance to go there, I really recommend it. It is absolutely amazing to see these sulfur bowls everywhere. Well, anyway, we know that Abraham then uh, goes to get, uh, he gets married uh, with Sarah. I mean, he's married before. We see that his wife goes with him to Egypt. But Abram and Sarah have two children. Hagar has Ishmael because Sarah gives Hagar her servant, to Abraham to have a wife trying to fulfill the promise for God. And then later, Sarah has Isaac. So we have Isaac and Ishmael. Now, I'm not going to talk about Ishmael here. We have a presentation on Islam. They will deal a little bit with Ishmael, where they, where they came from and what they believe, and, and are they really peaceful today. But bottom line is, the line of Christ is going to go through Isaac. We're going to follow Isaac right now. Isaac then grows up And Abraham gets a a wife for Isaac named Rebekah. You know the story about the servant being sent to get this wife for him. Well, the critics say that there's no way that as many gifts as these servants took to, you know, camel loads of them, that wouldn't happen. And let alone camels aren't supposed to be there at this time period. Well, again, they're in the wrong time period. And even besides... The lack of evidence that the camels were there doesn't mean they weren't there, but their time period is messed up anyway. Well, anyway, what's interesting about that? It says here in Genesis 24:22, it talks about all these great gifts that were given. And that's what they have a problem with. At Tel Mari, it was excavated in 1933, and it's on the border of Syria and Iraq. They revealed there through archaeology that there were ancient practices that are found identical to what Isaac was doing here in this wedding. They found a palace that had 260 rooms in it, even cuneiform tablets, thousands of them. And on some of them it showed how the king had two of his servants go off to another land to find a wife for his son and lavish them with camel loads of gifts. This indeed could have happened. Isaac then has two children, Jacob and Esau. We know that uh, after 20 years, Rebekah gives birth to Jacob and Esau, twins. E- Esau becomes the Edomites that lived in Petra. And then Jacob becomes the 12 tribes of Israel. He flees off to Laban. He's going to have 12 kids who become the 12 tribes of Israel. When he's leaving Laban, running away from Laban, he meets Esau after a number of years. And last time he saw Esau, Esau wanted to kill him. And so he's scared. And he bows down before Esau seven times. Well, we have found in the Armanach letters from Egypt, there is a reference to a Hebrew king, a king of Jerusalem, who writes to the king of Egypt and says, I fall at the feet of the king of my lord seven times and seven times. So even this letter seems to support some of the things that we see in the Bible. We even have Jacob's well here. One of the few very authentic places that you can go to in Israel. It is there and there's no question it's Jacob's well. The picture here you can see they built a church over it like they do with so many of these authentic places which kind of ruins it, but nonetheless, we know that that is Jacob's well. So there's evidence of Esau and Jacob. Petra, as an example, where Esau lived, they became known as the Edomites, later the Edomians. They were very hostile to Israel. Psalm 137 says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare. They, they wanted the fall of Jerusalem, and as a result, God gets angry, and He says, I'm going to destroy you, Edomites. As a matter of fact, the book of Obadiah, the whole book of Obadiah in the scriptures is a reference to Edom's judgment because of this. Here's a picture of Petra that you can see. It's just an amazing place to go see. It was once home of 30,000 people. Herod the Great, the one who killed the babies in the Bible, he was actually an Idumean a relation to Esau, came from them. So that quarrel went on a long time. Uh, There's a little history here. 106 AD, the Romans occupied Petra. And it was very prosperous under that time. Under Islam, though, it was abandoned. The crusaders came. They built a small castle there, but they left it, deserting it. And it was not found again until 1812. Today you can go there and there are still some people who might live in a cave or two there. Anyway, we see that Jacob, as I said, has the 12 tribes. And this is the part that I want to get you to. When he has the 12 tribes, one of the ones that we see is Joseph. Now, Joseph is roughly around 1669 B.C. The Bible says in Genesis 41 that they called him out before him and they said, bow the knee. So people bowed the knee before Joseph. By traditional chronology, it's the Hyksos who are ruling at this time. Many of your NIV study Bibles might even say that the Hyksos were ruling when Joseph was there. That is not true. It does not fit history. It does not fit the Bible. Okay, It is the 12th dynasty that Joseph is coming in here. We have pictures from the 12th dynasty of Semitic people coming in to the land. Notice they have beards even. And even coats of what look like many colors. These clearly look like Hebrews coming into the land. Not only that, but there's a guy named Mentuhotep in the records there. And I believe that Mentuhotep could be Joseph. I'm not going to be dogmatic on it. But it's very possible that Joseph was Mentuhotep. Remember, Joseph was given an Egyptian name, and his brothers did not recognize him. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 41, verses 39 through 40, that Pharaoh said to Joseph, you shall be over my house only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Guys, this is rare. You don't have somebody being equal with Pharaoh, do you? Even the records show that this is rare, but yet this is what we have in history, in the, in the Egyptian records, it says this about a guy named Mentuhotep. When he held the office of chief treasurer, as did the powerful vizier, Mentuhotep, under Sesostris I, the account which he could give of himself read like the declaration of the king's power. So, this Mentuhotep, under Sesostris I, whatever he said, it was like Pharaoh saying it. And not only that, it goes on to say that he appears as the alter ego of the king. When he arrived, the great personages bowed down before him at the outer door of the royal palace. They even bowed down to Joseph, or Mentuhotep, I should say. Not only that, there was a provincial governor during the reign of Sesostris I, when Mentuhotep was reigning. And his tomb is up in the hills there, and there's an inscription on his tomb, and this is what it says. No one was unhappy in my days, not even in the years of famine. For I had tilled all the fields of the Nome of Ma up to its southern and northern frontiers. Thus I prolonged the life of its inhabitants and preserved the food which it produced. No hungry man was in it. I distributed equally to the widow as to the married woman. First of all, a famine in which obviously they knew was coming because they stored up food before it, and then they distributed food out equally to the widow, to the married woman. What could it be other than the time of Joseph? We also have another picture here of a pharaoh. His name is Sesostris III. You see, Sesostris I, according to Egyptian records, was a very nice guy. The Egyptians liked him. He's even pictured as a a shepherd to shepherd people rather than animals. And uh, that would fit the description. Well, Sesostris II, uh, you know, Joseph probably wasn't uh, uh, forgotten yet with the second guy coming in. But Sesostris III, enough time has passed for Joseph to be forgotten. When Sesostris III comes about, he's the second to the last king of the 12th dynasty. This, I believe, is probably the one that enslaved the Israelites. He's always this stern-looking guy. He's the fifth king in the 12th dynasty. His son is going to be Amonim the But look at him. He just looks like a jerk, doesn't he? He's got this scowling frown on him. These guys wanted to be portrayed the way they wanted to be remembered. And so this guy apparently wanted to be remembered as a jerk. <laughs> he has this frown on. No other pharaoh is like this. Now, we know that Sesostris the then, if he would enslave the Israelites during this time, then Moses is going to be born. Like I said, he has a son, Amenemet III. Moses probably was born during Amenemet III's reign. We know that Amenemet ruled for 48 years. He had two daughters. One of them died prematurely, and the other one, named Sobekneferu, had no kids. She couldn't have kids because she was barren. As a matter of fact, when her father died, she ended up ruling for four years. In his place. Here is a picture of Sobek Neferu. Her name means Beauties of Sobek, the crocodile god. And again, she's the daughter of Amenemet III. Is it possible? I mean, have you guys ever asked yourself why Pharaoh would allow his daughter to take in a Hebrew baby when he's trying to kill them to begin with? I mean, it's not like she's bringing home a puppy. Why would they be allowed to keep a Hebrew child? Well, as I said, she was barren. She could have no children. And it just stands to reason that she would go to the river Nile, which, by the way, was the fertility god named Happy. They would go to Happy and saying, Happy, give me a child. I'm infertile, which was a disgrace in those days. And there's no heir for the throne. We need an heir for the throne. Please, Happy, give me a child. So one day she goes out, and there is Moses along the banks of the Nile. Happy has provided. Yeah, you see, the movie Prince of Egypt has kind of contaminated our view of of Moses. We see him floating down the river. He wasn't floating down the river. The Bible says he was placed among the banks of the Nile. And he was placed there so that he would be found by Pharaoh's daughter. Miriam, his sister, stands by... And watches. And then later, Miriam comes and runs and says, you want me to go get somebody to nurse him? And, and make sure that Yochebed, Moses' mother, actually gets to nurse him. God was divinely taking care of this, there's no question. But it seems like there may have been a plan there as well. She is going to rule for four years. But when she dies, it ends the 12th dynasty. And the 13th dynasty is going to begin then with Neferhotep I. Moses, at this time then, when she's ruling, has already run out into the wilderness for 40 years. By that time then, when Neferhotep I comes into power, in the 13th dynasty, he was the last king that was there before the Asiatics leave this town that we know Asiatics lived in called Kahun. I'll explain it in a moment. But it seems that Neferhotep I was probably the guy here who said, let my people go. Moses said, I should say, to him. According to the secular world, Ramses is the pharaoh that, you know, died in the Red Sea. And in fact, the prince of Egypt doesn't even have him dying there. The problem is, I've seen Ramses' body. I've seen his his mummy. It could not be Ramses. That died Because the Bible says in Psalms that Pharaoh and his army are at the bottom of the Red Sea. Interestingly, though, Neferhotep, the first body, has never been found. They don't know why. Can I make a suggestion? He's at the bottom of the Red Sea. That's why his body has never been found. We have here in this papyrus, the Epipure papyrus, it says this. No, but the heart is violent. Plague stalks through the land. Blood is everywhere. No, but the river is blood. Does a man drink from it? He rejects it as human. He thirsts for water. No, but gates, columns, and walls are consumed with fire. Men are few. He that lays his brother in the ground is everywhere. The son of the highborn man is no longer to be recognized. Now, who's to blame for all of this? It says the stranger people from outside are come into Egypt. Corn is perished everywhere. People are stripped of clothing, perfume, and oil. Everyone says there's no more. The storehouse is bare. It has come to this. The king has been taken away by poor men. This is a record from the time period that we're talking about right now. And it's saying that the river is turned to blood. You see, the secular world says there's no evidence that... that, um, Moses was in Egypt, that the Exodus took place. Why? Because they're looking in the 18th dynasty. And they're right, there is no evidence of any of these plagues or anything taking place in the 18th dynasty. But you come to the end of the 12th, the beginning of the 13th dynasty, there are records of exactly what the Bible says. The river turned to blood. And the people who are to blame for this are stranger people, people that are poor men that have taken the king away. That sounds exactly like what we're reading about in the Bible. Josephus says of the Egyptian army, quoting Manetho here, he says, There was a king of ours whose name was Timaeus. Under him it came to pass, I know not how, that God was angry with us. And there came after a surprising manner men of noble birth out of the eastern parts. And they had boldness enough to make an expedition into our country. And with case subdued it by force, yet without hazarding a battle with them." When Moses delivered the people out of Egypt, don't you think they would have met some people? And indeed, they did. They, they believe they met the Amalekites first. Do you think those Amalekites might have questioned them and said, Hey, where are you going? Hey, we're, we're leaving. Where are you going? Uh, we the promised land. They let you go? No, our God delivered us. How? Well, he buried them in the Red Sea. The whole army is buried in the Red Sea? Yep. Have a nice trip. Guys, come on. Let's go attack Egypt. There's no army. Yeah. Because it says here, Josephus is saying, Manetho said that these guys came in, conquered Egypt, but without a battle. How do you conquer a country without a battle? You have their army buried at the bottom of the Red Sea. And he goes on to tell us who these people were. He said, afterwards, they burnt down our cities, demolished the temples of the gods. They used all the inhabitants after a most barbarous manner. Some they slew. They led their children and their wives into slavery. And this whole nation was styled Hyksos. These are the Hyksos, the people that came in after the Exodus, it seems. These guys were a very uncultured people. We know very little about the Hyksos people. Very little is known about them. And guess what? The Amalekites have also disappeared. So it is quite possible, many scholars believe, that these Hyksos could have been the Amalekites, the first people that the Israelites met and came in afterwards. Now, here's where this timeline is going to be really important. You would think that as they leave the Exodus here, they go out into the wilderness and spend 40 years out there, that they're going to leave a mark. Two million people wandering out in Kadesh Barnea should leave some kind of pottery or something there, evidence that the Israelites were there. Rudolf Cohen, who was the head of the Israeli Antiquities Authority, excavated the Sinai Peninsula when Israel had it after the 1967 Six-Day War. Now traditionally, according to secular tradition, this is the Middle Bronze One period when the Israelites are not supposed to be there. Keep in mind, according to traditional chronology, the Israelites aren't going to be here until a long time later. So they don't know who these MB1 people are because when they excavated the Sinai Peninsula, the MB1 period, they found evidence of people that did not have settlements, no houses and homes, but all kinds of pottery and things like this. And Rudolf Cohen, not a small guy here, says this has to be the Israelites. They're not supposed to be there in the MB1 period. However, with the corrected chronology, we know that the Israelites would be leaving in the MB1 period. Therefore, it fits what archaeology is saying if the timeline is corrected. By the way, he's not the only one. Almost all of the southern archaeologists in, in Israel agree with Cohen. The northern ones disagree with him, but the southern ones agree with him. So there's a, a difference. So know that's there. But the southern archaeologists are saying it has to be the Israelites. This is what Cohen says right here. The pottery, the settlements, and the other aspects of the material culture of the MB1 people that have been uncovered over the last 50 years differ significantly from what went before in the early bronze period and from what followed in the MB2 period the early bronze was characterized by flourishing urban civilization the same was true of MB2 in MB1 however there is an absence of urban settlements in my view the new MB1 population came from the south and the sinai see they weren't they didn't have homes to live in they were just wandering around And that's exactly what we would expect to see, so the evidence fits. By the way, as they're just about to enter into the Promised Land, they went right by Petra where the Edomites were. And in 1967, they found some plaster fragments there near Jordan where uh, Petra is at. And they found an inscription with the name Balaam on it and a prophecy of Balaam. Just like the Bible says, just where it's supposed to be. And you probably remember Balaam's donkey, that kind of thing. So here you can see a picture of Mount Hor in Petra. You can just see a little faint white thing on the top of the highest hill there. That is where Aaron would die just before going into the Promised Land. Well, as they are ready to enter into the Promised Land, they cross the Jordan River, and the first place they go is Jericho. There are houses along the wall that were burnt laying upon pottery, storehouses that were found completely full with unbaked dough even found in ovens in one home, suggesting that this fall of Jericho, when it was excavated, it shows that the fall was very quick. It wasn't like the normal besieging where they would take years and months in, in order to, to starve the people to death. Kathleen Kenyon excavated Jericho in the 1950s, and she said that the destruction happened at the end of the early bronze, which was the beginning of the middle bronze one, MB1 period, And she says, see, your Bible is wrong because there's no question Jericho fell in MB1, the beginning of MB1 period. Israel's not there yet. You're wrong. The Bible's wrong. Well, with the corrected uh, chronology, she's just proven the Bible to be correct. It was the MB1 period when Jericho fell. When they first come in here, there's a lack of urban settlements again. No houses. When King Hussein was in power... He wanted to tax these nomads and the Bedouins. Well, the problem is, if you don't have no home, how do you tax them? And so he couldn't tax them. So he made a law that everybody had to have a home and an address. So the government paid to build homes for the Bedouins and the the nomads. You know what they did? The Bedouins put their animals in the house, and they slept outside in the backyard in their tents. They weren't used to living in this enclosed structure of homes. They liked the open air. And so as a result, they weren't used to it. They didn't live in it. Do you suppose the same could be true for the Israelites? I mean, all they knew, their whole life was tent living, and they may not have wanted to live in houses for a little bit after that. So it is quite possible. That's why in the MB2 period, we're just starting to see cities being to develop and more of that happening because you don't have as much building going on initially. This picture kind of shows you there were two walls there, and when the walls came down, even little details in the Bible where it says here in Joshua 6.20 that they went up into the city is important because it shows that they did have to go up into the city over these two walls. So Rahab would have had her home in those first wall there where they could let the spies down to get away. Now when they conquered Jericho, they're all excited. We're going into the promised land, so they, they kind of get ready to go, but Unfortunately, there was a guy named Achan who had kept some of the the loot and he wasn't supposed to. And so they go to conquer this next city of Ai and they fail. Well, Achan's sin is found out. Five kings come together and we see that's when Joshua has the, the sun stops and they conquer the southern kingdoms. So after they conquer all the southern kingdoms at once in that long day, the northern kingdoms are getting kind of concerned, so they unite, and you can see all of the names of these cities, that, of the kings that united, a lot of people. Well, the capital of all these cities, the head of these cities, was a city called Hazor. And the Bible talks about this Hazor. We read here in Joshua chapter 11, it says in verse 13, As for the cities that stood still in their strength, Israel burned none of them, Save Hazor only. That did Joshua burn. Archaeology, we've found many of these cities that the Bible mentions that united against Israel. And you know what? None of them are burned except for one, Hazor. Just like the Bible says. Now, if Joshua's conquest took place at the end of the early bronze three period, like the secular world was trying to tell you with that wrong chronology, then the evidence doesn't make any sense. Because Hazor falls in the MB1 period. If the chronology is corrected and it's correct, it's right, then this makes sense why we would see that. Hazor is actually one of the largest tells in in Israel. It's over 15 acres. The lower city had about 170 acres. Just the Acropolis was 15 acres alone. It's a pretty major city, and it's been excavated quite well. And like I said, it all is lining up to what we see. We also see Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle was set up. Israel Finkelstein excavated this in the 1980s, but due to the traditional dating, he had a problem understanding what he was seeing. There was a sanctuary there, but long before the Israelites were supposed to be there. And what we see in the sanctuary is the, out, the, the pattern fits perfectly the tabernacle. Exactly, and you can kind of see it outlined here in this picture. There was a, a massive wall surrounding the city, but there was no evidence of any houses in the city. So why would that be? He reasoned it must be Canaanite because of the secular dating, but the evidence just wasn't making sense. Well, bottom line is this. We know that the tabernacle at that time was a tent, wasn't it? And so there would be no houses. What did the priests live in? Houses. Like I said, they probably didn't even build uh, houses for a while there. And as a result, we see a sanctuary that fits exactly the dimensions of the tabernacle and no houses but a wall, which is why it would be interpreted as the Israelites. Another very small detail that's very important here at Shiloh. We see that when uh, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, there was a man that came into the city, and as he's entering the city, the first person he meets is Eli, sitting there waiting to find out what happens by the tabernacle. And he hears that his sons are dead, the Ark has been captured, and he tips over on his chair and breaks his neck. Archaeology, just the city, shows us that there's a road that comes right around the hill there. And the first thing that you would run into as you come into this city is the tabernacle, where Eli was sitting, just like that Bible says. So these little details are important to show the Bible to be accurate. And speaking of the Philistines that captured the ark, we have even found, there's no question, the city of Gath. Remember who grew up in Gath? Goliath, 2004. Uh, at what's today called Tel Es Safar, which is Gath, pottery with the inscription Goliath written right on it. We also see, the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 21 20, that there was a guy there that had six fingers and six toes. And in these excavations at Ain Ghazal in Jordan, they found a straw man that had six fingered and six toes, a straw covered with clay and things like that, so you could still see the toes and the fingers. So even something like that. We even see uh, Samson went to the Philistine city of Timnah, and he had a wife that was going to be there. In uh, Judges 15, it says the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said, if this is what you do, I'll swear I'm going to be avenged on you. Well, when they excavated Timnah, in this book here it'll talk about it, it says this, Two human skeletons found under the burnt debris of stratum 7 provide evidence of the building's violent end. One lay on the floor in the center of the hall. The other had fallen over on the sill of the hall's entrance among the fallen bricks from the second floor. These were the remains of two Timnaites who probably were trapped in the fiery collapse of the buildings. Now, I'm not saying that these are the two that the Bible mentions, but I'll say this. Only that house was burnt. None of the other ones. And you didn't have electrical fires back then. So, there seems to be, you know, a possibility, but... Not necessarily anything that we can be dogmatic on with that. Well, David uh, is going to be one of the first kings that we see. You know, Saul is the first king. David is the first good king. And we know that David, when Saul is king, has to flee from him. And he has to flee to a place called Masada. Now, Masada is uh, literally, in Hebrew, it's the stronghold. What we read in 1 Samuel 24, it says David and his men went up to the stronghold. That word stronghold is Masada. So David may have been the first person to have lived there in the stronghold. We know that Saul, a bad king, he dies and David is going to take over. This, according to secular world, is the Iron Age II period. But like I said, the problem is it's a time of poverty. There's hardly anyone uh, rich at this time. But the Bible says David was rich. But what we see is if the MB1 period is when they came into the promised land, the MB2 period marks a very different time period when these kings are coming about and it is one of the most prosperous periods of all Israelite history, the MB2 period. So again, correcting the chronology of that timeline, the archaeology is coming together and it fits perfectly So, it's kind of funny that years ago, some even claimed that David didn't even exist because there was no evidence of it. But that has long been proven wrong by archaeology. They've even found at Dan this uh, fragment here that says the house of David, among many other things. But again, we'd be dealing with the Middle Bronze II period with a corrected chronology. Well, David has a number of sons. The son that's going to take over as king would be Solomon. Well, Solomon... Uh, Again, very rich kingdom during this time period in history and archaeology. But it says in 1 Kings 9 that he married a daughter of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, as a wedding gift, burns the city of Gezer to give to his daughter as a gift. Well, here you can see some burned wheat that has been found at Gezer. So Gezer has been found there as well. The critics, too, by the way, say that Solomon could not have married that many wives. To have 700 wives and 300 concubines, that's ridiculous. Well, interestingly, Amenhotep III, the pharaoh there, also had 1,000 wives in his harem. So how come the world's not saying, oh, there's no way Amenhotep could have had that? And they're only picking on Solomon. So, uh, again, archaeology is showing us that the Bible is not out of line there. So we also have to ask, then, who is this woman that Solomon is marrying? Who is Pharaoh's daughter here? According to the connected timeline, just keeping the same thing in Egypt, who would be Pharaoh? Well, we see Thutmose I in the 18th dynasty now. So when you think 18th dynasty, don't think Joseph, think Solomon. Now, in the 18th dynasty, Thutmose I had two daughters, Nefrubidi and Hatshepsut. Now, Hatshepsut will become later the sole ruler of Egypt. As a matter of fact, you see a picture of here. you can clearly see it is a woman. Later pictures of her, we see that she's more flat-chested and that she's got the pharaoh's beard. We know who these people are because their names are on their cartouche, and it says it's Hatshepsut. So we know these statues are of Hatshepsut. What's interesting is there's no further record of Nephrubidi, and the scholars don't know why. She just disappears off the scene, and Thutmosis has Hatshepsut reigning instead. It seems that Hatshepsut was the queen of Sheba, possibly, that the Bible talks about in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1. We see Jesus mentioning the queen of Sheba in Matthew 12, 42, but he identifies her as the queen of the south that came and visited Solomon. Daniel 11 says the queen, king of the south is the king of Egypt. So it stands to reason that the queen of the south could be the queen of Egypt. Josephus also says that Sheba was queen of Ethiopia and Egypt. So there is a lot of good evidence that says that this queen of Sheba, the queen of the south that came to visit Solomon, could be Hatshepsut, because she was the sole ruler. And she ruled for seven years. And in those seven years, she did some amazing things. She built tremendous obelisks, one of them 97 feet tall, the tallest in Egypt. One would have been 136 feet tall, but uh, they found a flaw in it, apparently. Uh, But anyway, if Hatshepsut was the queen of Sheba, she may have had another reason to come and visit Solomon, to see her sister, Nefrubidi. Again, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this. It's just following the timeline. History is fitting. The Bible says in 1 Kings 10, verse 10, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord... She came to test him with hard questions. So what seems to be the driving factor to come and see Solomon? The fame of Yahweh. How did she hear about the fame of Yahweh? Could it be her sister? Maybe, possibly. I'm not going to be dogmatic on it. But it is a possibility because Hatshepsut records on her temple walls a record of this great vacation she took to the land of Punt. And she calls it God's land, a beautiful land. Now, other Egyptian records refer to Punt as being in Palestine. However, the world today has interpreted this as being somewhere in Africa. Why? Because on this record of this great trip she took to the land of Punt, she shows all these things that she brings back from the land. And one of the the things is a plant that looks like it comes from Africa. So they think, well, it's an African plant. It must be Africa that Punt is described as. But she shows on her her temples here these pictures of many soldiers bringing boatloads of things back from the land of Punt. Critics often question that, you know, could the Bible really be accurate with the amount of gold that Solomon had there? Well, the reason they question it is because they've got it in the wrong time zone when it was a time of poverty. But in the Middle Bronze II period, yes, there is no question that there could be that much gold as in the times of David and Solomon. So the second half of the MB II period is the most prosperous of all history in this culture. And as a result, it just makes sense that this would be the time period as well. But if Solomon had that much stuff, the Bible records that he was getting stuff from all over the world. Every year, ships were bringing him things. Look what it says here in 1 Kings 10, 10 through 13. She, the queen of Sheba, gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great abundance, precious stones. The ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of amalgam wood, precious stones from Ophir. And King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba... All she desired. As you read the whole thing, you see that she left with more than what she came into the land with. She went home with more. And when she goes home, she draws pictures of it, like I said. Because Solomon is getting things from Africa, baboons, and all kinds of things, do you suppose she might have taken back some things from Africa, which is why that African plant is there? You bet. It's a good possibility. But not only that, when she goes back, she builds a temple, a huge mortuary temple. And here you can see it pictured. It's on the west bank of the Nile at Luxor. And it's unique to all other temples in Egypt. You see how there's this ramp that goes up to the temple? That ramp is an identical construction to what we see in the biblical Jewish altar. In the Bible, it says that This queen of Sheba was impressed by the way Solomon ascended up to the temple. She was impressed by that for some reason. So, is it a coincidence that Hatshepsut, after she goes to the land of Punt, builds something that looks just like what we see in the biblical altar? I don't know. I'm not going to be dogmatic. All I'm saying is it fits, and it is unique in Egypt. Well, then Solomon... His son, Rehoboam, becomes king. Now, Rehoboam was not as wise as his father Solomon. And he didn't listen to the older people. He listened to his young buddies instead. And as a result, the kingdom is going to be divided into two. But it says in the scriptures that Solomon had made 300 gold shields here in 1 Kings ten seventeen, And also gold-plated doors in 1 Kings 6, verse 32. But when Rehoboam becomes king, because he's not so wise, things start falling apart, and the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, comes up against Rehoboam. And look what it says here in 1 Kings 14. It happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. So Shishak, this pharaoh... Comes takes away not only the gold shields but the things out of the temple. According to the revised chronology, the corrected chronology, Shishak would then be Thutmose the third. Just following our timeline, it'd be Thutmose the third. And by the way, many of these pharaohs had many names. Okay, that is seen even in Egyptology. Uh, so this isn't unique. So it's why need these different names? It's just what they did. Here's the thing: if it was Thutmose the third. He was one of the mightiest pharaohs. He led over 70 military campaigns, conquered 119 different cities. But one of them that he was especially proud of was the conquering of a city named Kadesh. Now, Kadesh very well could be Jerusalem because Thutmose describes this attack. He was actually going after the city of Megiddo. And the people of Megiddo cried out for help, and the city of Kadesh came to help them. And this is what he says on his records here in his temple. Now, if only his majesty's army had not given up their hearts to capturing the possessions of the enemy, they would have captured Megiddo at this time, while the wretched enemy of Kadesh and the wretched enemy of this town were being dragged up hastily to get them into the town. What happened, he goes on to describe that They were conquering Megiddo, the people of Kadesh came, well they still turned on Kadesh and they were still beating both of the people. So the people of Megiddo ran into the town, shut the gates and started pulling the people of Kadesh up over the walls with ropes. Well now the people are gone out of Kadesh, so they go and they loot Kadesh instead of conquering the city of Megiddo and killing the people, they're worried about the loot instead. And that's what goes on. And it says that Thutmose was elated and said the capturing of Megiddo was the capturing of a thousand towns. Now that in and of itself isn't much. However, when we look at what Kadesh means, Kadesh is the Hebrew word for holy. As a matter of fact, Jerusalem is even called Kadesh in Nehemiah 11 verse 1. Cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city. And the Hebrew word there is Kadesh. They call themselves after the holy city, Kadesh, Isaiah 48, verse 2. So, when he comes back from this Kadesh, not only do we have the same name that Jerusalem is called in the Bible, but he draws pictures of the things of the loot that he's so proud of that he brings back. And look at these pictures. One of them that's listed are 300 gold shields. That's what Shishak took away from Rehoboam. It often looks here, too, like maybe two gold doors. Could those be the gold doors that Solomon had built? Even what looks somewhat like a menorah, possibly. Now, again, guys, I'm not just, you know, picking and choosing when to punch in the timeline here. All we've done is we've corrected the timeline, having the Egyptian dynasty start at 2100 B.C. And we just follow the timeline, and everything is fitting perfectly. My DVD on the pharaohs will even give you more details on this. But what I want you to see is that this corrected timeline fixes everything. And all of secular archaeology today is based on the pharaohs. So if our dating of the pharaohs is wrong, the dating you see in the museums is wrong. This whole thing when we hear Iron Age and Bronze Age and and, and that type of thing. So if you can just remember Middle Bronze period, when you go to the museums and you see this is from Middle Bronze, you automatically can say, oh, this is the time. MB 1 is the Exodus. MB 2 is King David. So you'll have kind of a time frame that way. Um, we also see then later on in the Kings, we have other significances that support an archaeology in the Bible here. We see uh, Elijah and Baal worship. We talked about him earlier, where Elijah goes up on the mountain and the fire comes down and consumes the altar. Well, the, the Baal worshipers, when they were trying to offer their sacrifice, Baal wasn't answering. And so they start beating themselves, cutting themselves things that we think of almost Satanism today. Well, in 1929, they found 15 tablets in Syria that spoke of Baal worship, and this is what it says. He cut his skin with a knife. He made incision with a razor. He cut his cheeks and skin. He raked his arms with a reed. He plowed his chest like a garden. He raked his back like a valley. That's exactly what the Bible says, how they worship Baal, and this is how the priests of that time, according to archaeology, did as well. We also see Moab, a guy named Misha, king of Moab, mentioned here in 2 Kings 7, verses 6-7. through That name Misha has also shown up in archaeology. A Moab stone found in Jordan reads this, I am Misha, son of Chemosh, king of Moab. Omri, who was Ahab's father, was king of Israel, and he oppressed Moab many days, for Chemosh was angry with his land. And his son succeeded him, and he also said, I will oppress Moab. And so even this is being backed up, that Moab was there. Jonah, people say, oh, Jonah couldn't be swallowed by a great fish. Well, actually, there is some historical evidence supporting that that could have happened. The Indian Sunday statesman, May 25th of 1953, reported this. It says, one of the most miraculous escapes from death and an experience almost unique in world history befell a seaman named James Bartley one February day in 1891. Bartley was a seaman on the American whaler Star of the East. The lookout man spotted a whale, and despite the rough weather, all the hands were quickly at work. Soon the deadly harpoon found its mark. As suddenly as it started, the struggle ended, and the crew saw that their catch was indeed a mighty sperm whale. The engines were stopped. The boats were lowered to bring the whale to the ship's side. In one of the boats was James Bartley, an experienced sailor at the ready. Approaching the creature's tail, Bartley was about to attach his coiled rope to it, when the whale shivered, its tail flashed, and in a split second, Bartley's boat had been flung high into the air. Both he and his mates were tossed into the boiling seas. Then a sudden and unexpected return to life of the whale took all by surprise. For it had seemed quite dead, but since things had happened before, and the whaler's mate was already standing on the deck with his rifle... Two shots cracked out as he fired, and the whale hit in a vital spot, reared up from the water, opened its mighty jaws, and the last quiver of death then momentarily disappeared beneath the churning waters. In seconds, it reappeared, quite dead. Then the skipper remembered Bartley. The second boat was ordered to search for the two men, but there was no sign of them. Giving them up as dead, the skipper had the whale roped and hauled aboard. Then began the laborious task of cutting it up. Unexpectedly, one of the men on the job let out a cry and began to hack furiously at the belly of the creature. Others hastened to help, and there before their amazed eyes was the unconscious figure of James Bartley. Stripped, massaged, and swathed in blankets in a warm cabin, Bartley soon recovered to tell his tale to his awestruck mates. Again, this is just some I reckon many other newspapers had recorded this type of thing going on. But it does support the possibility that, it, and, and there's modern day examples of, of supporting that this indeed could have happened. The king of Nineveh at the time of Jonah, by the way, was Adad-Nirari III, who ruled from 810 to 782 BC. And it just so happened that a religious revival took place under him. Though Jonah's name is not mentioned in the record, revival does take place at the time period that Jonah's supposed to be there. Happy coincidence or just more support for the Scripture. We also see Hosea and the fall of Samaria discussed here in Scripture. In 2 uh, Kings 17, 2-3, it talks about Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, who came up against Hosea. Second Kings 17, verse 5, says the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. Well, we have here, you can see pictures of Sennacherib. There were a number of evil kings in Israel until Hoshea, and they were paying tribute to Shalmaneser. Well, when Hoshea became king, he stopped the tribute, and he began to, to come into an alliance with So, who was king of Egypt. But this alliance failed, so the king of Assyria came back and he besieged Samaria. And this all takes place in about 722 BC. They come, and Samaria is captured. And they become known as the Samaritans later, these half-breeds, because they were Gentiles. By the way, these were Jews. These were the ten tribes of Israel that the Samarita, that uh, Samaria, that were living in the Samarian area. They were taken, assimilated into the culture, and became known as what we today, and in Jesus' day, were called Gentiles. So even many Gentiles today could be actually Jews from these ten tribes. But... Not all of them. What we see is it was Sennacherib here, and you can see him pictured. The land became so desolate that the lions became to attack, so they brought some people back to the land to teach them about the God of Israel, which was still a kind of a corrupted way to try and get you know, back at these lions. But what's interesting is that we see the story of Sennacherib and Hezekiah, because Sennacherib was capturing all these countries. He, he captured the ten tribes, then he came down to the southern tribes to get Jerusalem, but he failed at his attempt to capture them. Why? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly that the king of Assyria uh, was you know, blaspheming God and doing all those things. He said, you know, the gods of, of Lachish and all these other gods couldn't save them. Why would you think your God could save you? Well, Hezekiah goes and prays before the Lord, and God gives an answer back that says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of it. They wake up in the morning and 185,000 of the Assyrian army is dead. And so he goes back home and Jerusalem is spared. Well, when he goes back home, they, they make what's called today the Lachish tablets and there's also the Assyrian Sennacherib tablets. And you can see here, it reads this, As to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities. I drove out of them 200 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small cattle, beyond counting, and considered them booty. And it goes on Himself I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. So what's interesting about that is it's saying he locked him up like a bird in a cage. How come, you know, I conquered everybody else, but not Hezekiah? Why? Well, because the Bible says he woke up and his army was dead. So they didn't record all the negative things that happened, but we can read between the lines and see what happened here clearly by these tablets. Now, another interesting thing is it says that there were 30 talents of gold, 800 talents of silver and precious stones that were taken. That's what the Sennacherib tablets say. However, the Bible says 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So the gold lines up, but one says 800 talents of silver, the other is saying 300 talents of silver. So which is right, the Bible or the Sennacherib tablets? Which one's right? There's even proof that the Bible is the one that's correct because there are other records that are in museums today that record the exact same as the Bible, 300, not the 800 on this tablet. So other records are even supporting what the Bible says, that it's not the Bible that should ever be put into question. We also know that Hezekiah, um, in preparation, seeing the writing on the wall that countries were coming in and attacking, that he builds this big tunnel called Hezekiah's Tunnel. We see this is described in 2 Kings 20, verse 1. This in archaeology has been found clearly. You can go and walk through it today. In 612 B.C., Babylon and Media conquered Nineveh. 200 years later, nobody knew where it was. But Zephaniah 2.13.14 says, He stretched out his hand against the north and destroyed Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste, like a desert. Just like Zephaniah says that Assyria is going to become a dry waste, a, a, a desert land, nobody even knew where it was for hundreds of years until recently found in archaeology. In 612 B.C., after it was conquered 200 years later, nobody knew it. Just like the Bible said. See, prophetically, the Bible seems to just uh, rise to the occasion all the time as well. We have Jehoiakim in Babylon. Jehoiakim is mentioned in the Bible in 2 Kings 25 as as being taken to prison. And then it says, so Jehoiakim put off his prison garments. For some reason, he was taken out of prison and then ate at the king's table in Babylon. Well, when Babylon has been excavated, Professor Coldway found debris there at the gate of Babylon. And one of them even says this, one half pie for Yakanu, king of the land of Yehuda. It tells how much food he was supposed to have even. So it fits exactly with what the scriptures say. So putting this all together, what do we see? We see Israel Finkelstein in archaeology of the Israelite settlement said this, The late Bronze period was characterized by a severe crisis in settlement. Moreover, those sites where occupation did continue frequently shrank in size. The Iron One period again witnessed a dramatic swing in the population of the hill country. Why and where did over half of the MB2 population, virtually all the inhabitants of the hill country, vanish? From where did the people who settled the hundreds of sites in Iron I materialize? Let me explain to you what he's saying here. According to secular chronology, at the end of MB2 period, people disappear. Where'd they go? It can't be the uh, exile into Babylon because the Jews aren't there yet. But with the corrected timeline, what we're seeing is, ah, the people disappear at the end of MB2 period because they were exiled to Babylon and the others were scattered in into Assyria no wonder that the people disappear but strangely in the iron one period the beginning of the iron age people return again why well 70 years later just as god predicted the babylonian king cyrus and whatnot would let them come back and the israelites come back to the land now how do the secular people get around this here's what they say and you might think i'm joking i'm not This is literally what they say. The reason people left at the MB2 period, since it can't be the Israelites, is they got tired of city life and wanted to give country living a a shot. And it didn't work out. That's why they came back in the Iron Age one period. You see the lengths they have to go to avoid just looking at exactly what the Bible says, that the earth is young, and take a young earth chronology? And as far as the end of Babylon goes, history shows it was Nabonidus who was the king, the last king of Babylon. That's what history tells us. He crowned Belshazzar as co-regent while he was on military campaigns. But what's interesting is the Bible says this in Daniel 5-7. When Babylon is about to fall, Daniel is brought in, and this is what they say. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Well, if Belshazzar is king, how can Daniel be third ruler? Very simple. Exactly what archaeology tells us. That Nabonidus is king and that when he went on his military campaign, he put Belshazzar in charge. And so Daniel would be third. Nabonidus, Belshazzar... Daniel would be the third ruler. But Daniel, of course, refuses that. Then we also see the Cyrus cylinder here pictured. It supports the decree for the Jews to return. It says this, I am Cyrus, king of the world. I returned to these sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries which have been ruins for a long time. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. So even that we see the return is confirmed by Cyrus here. We could go on and on from here, the, the Caiaphas ossuary, uh, basically the tomb of Caiaphas in Jesus' day, you know, the priest. We see that that has been found proving that Caiaphas was indeed a high priest at that time that when Jesus was there. We even see the ossuary of James that has been found and now has been proven to be authentic. It confirms that Jesus was indeed the son of Joseph, the brother of James, just like the Bible says. So to put this in order, if, if you're going to a museum and you're seeing these middle bronze and things like that, this will help you out. We know that Abraham was born in the early bronze one period, EB1. EB2 goes by, EB3 is where we have, at the end of that, is the Exodus. EB3, so that when they come into Jericho, we have MB1 period. MB2 is David's dynasty. LB1 is the exile, LB2, late Bronze II, is when they uh, are still exiled in Babylon for those 70 years. Iron Age comes back and they repopulate. They're returning from Cyrus's decree and living there in the Iron Age II period. So that gives you kind of a a little nutshell version of history and how it fits with archaeology. And when you go to these museums, you can kind of put things together. But like I said, it's important because... It isn't just the carbon dating we need to worry about. It's even the secular dating based on Egyptian pharaohs that corrupts what we see in our museums. But when it is corrected, if it's not corrected, everything seems to contradict. But when it is corrected, everything lines up perfectly. So, hope you've enjoyed it. God's blessings. Have a wonderful evening.